From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. This podcast has been sponsored by Fuego. Discover the workspaces and business tools powering exceptional excellence in interior design. Fuego's 18,000-square-foot Park Avenue studio includes beautiful workspaces and material and product samples from thousands of top A&D vendors in the world's largest lending material library. Now available to interior designers everywhere, Fuego's modern project management software was tailored to solve the business needs of groundbreaking designers at Fuego Studio. Visit FuegoStudio.com to book a tour. That's F-U-I-G-O Studio.com. And now, on with the show. Making good design democratic has been at the core of modern furniture company Blue Dot since its founding in 1997. Co-founders John Christakos, Maurice Blanks, and Charlie Laser set out to create an American furniture company in an era when venture capital, attainable modern design, and an assertive brand voice didn't exist in the home industry. Twenty years later, Blue Dot's forging efforts haven't gone unnoticed. This year, the company celebrated its recognition as the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award winner for product design, as well as the debut of a memoir chronicling the Minneapolis company's pioneering journey. I sat down with John and Maurice to learn about the growth of Blue Dot, its early foray into selling furniture online, and how the company continues to expand its global footprint. So tell us the Blue Dot origin story of the, the name, and because uh, I, I just thought that was so great. Yeah. So yeah. we started talking about this by fax. I mean, this is pre-email. So, right. So uh, we were in different, living in different cities, and, and uh, I think I tossed out a fax to Maurice and Charlie saying, like, hey, I want to kick that design idea around again. I'm getting tired, not, you know, getting ready to move on from my current job, and I think I've saved up enough money to to try this out, what do you think? And they're like, yeah, sure, let's let's uh, spitball this idea a little bit. So I invited them all to Minneapolis, and I think um, we had you know a couple of long weekends of of you know having a few beers and meals together, and kind of just talking about um, what we would focus on, what our, what we'd be about. Uh, long walks around the lakes in Minneapolis, talking about that. So um, I, I remember one particular weekend, walks around the lakes, where where it really started to kind of come together a little bit for us. Um, that's where the name, I think, um, okay. started to happen. Is that where we came up with yeah, Blue Dot? We, 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 while we were doing the faxes, we were faxing back different names. Uh, we went we through should, a lot of names. We should point out for some of our younger listeners that a fax machine <laughs> was actually a device that, <laughs> over telephone lines, right, right. we used to insert pieces of paper, right. Thermal sort of rolled up paper would come out on the other end, and uh, you would you would read that much right. much like the Declaration of Independence that you might have seen in the museum. It looked very similar, right. and yes, and you all, which I love, saved many of these thermal right. faxes right. from from the early days. So you were faxing back and forth right. about different ideas, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, because it was pre-email, right? So it was the it was a, it was the easiest, fastest way for us to get a long document to each other to express the ideas and yeah. and put ideas down and read them and kind of comment at it. Um, but we did go through a lot of names and um, some a lot of names we are really glad that we didn't choose. Okay. Uh, they were pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we eventually came to the idea that it should be something that is, it shouldn't be someone's name because right. the idea of the company was 
it would be a collaborative uh, design effort. It wouldn't be about one individual. Uh, it would be modern. It would be simple. It would be humble. So it shouldn't be highfalutin. Mm, okay. Um, so it, we kind of came up with the idea that it should be something that's that's abstract, it's simple. The idea of it being graphic was important mm. or felt right to us because then it could be used on packaging and you know right. we could integrate the design and the marketing and the packaging and the name. Um, and so I, th I we might have thrown around different colors and different shapes and mm. somehow kind of got to blue. Okay. And, and blue dot. Yeah, it was also it was also around the time that that Prince, who's from Minneapolis, was. Was, uh, I was changed his say, name to a symbol, yes. and, and in I a small way, he played a role. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. it was around the same time. So we were like, "Yeah, what if our name was just a symbol?" Like we we even considered without words, like literally just a, a shape, a blue dot. Yeah. But realized the practical, or impracticality of that, I should say. Right. Being listed in the phone book is challenging when you yeah. Right, when you're just a symbol. I don't know yeah. why they put. Symbols. I don't know. Yeah. Do they go in the front or they go at the end? Yeah, right. Or how you answer the phone? Yeah. yeah. Right. So yeah. we so. Yeah, so we eventually became more practical okay. and uh, and and chose blue dot and chose blue dot with an e uh, originally had an e originally mm -hmm. yeah okay and then we uh, we found through uh, I guess a friend of John's wife yeah we a found friend of mine actually at that point stage, a friend yeah. of John's we found a, a graphic designer who was also young in his career okay and we basically said we don't have any money but would you design a logo for us right and we struck a deal which was essentially he had a small child. And he wanted a, 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 a tree fort, basically a tree house for his kid. So he said, if you guys design and build a tree house, I'll design the logo. As, you know, that was the barter. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I love so, it. And you did. Yeah, we, we did. did. We did. So he designed. We got the, the tree house was about half done. We gave him a thousand bucks after that because we felt guilty. <laughs> we, never, we never got to around to finishing it. He finished it. But he designed the logo. He came in with the, with the logo, essentially the logo that you, we have today. Right. And, and he said, how do you feel about losing the E? Yeah, well, you know, he didn't really ask. He didn't, he didn't really ask. ask. He one, one option. I mean, he, he was channeling Paul Rand, who you know, is famous for giving his clients uh, you know, one option. Steve right. Jobs was one of his clients. Right. And, yeah. uh, so, yeah. um, After he'd been in business for 30 years and was an icon in graphic design. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. He wasn't a 24-year-old. <laughs> right, right, true. But uh, he's like, no, this is the logo. And he had a little booklet that, that, like Rand used to put together, where he walked through his logic of how he got to the logo and why he dropped the E and how it's a square within a circle and every, the letters line up and whatnot. And he's like, this is it. Like, you know, I, yeah. I, if you guys don't want this logo, like, I'm out. Right. And, yeah. and we yeah. were like, okay. Like you're fools if you don't take yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were like, yeah. sure. We, we, we love it. We, he actually still works with us. He's a principal graphic designer with us now. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So... At the time, so you, so now you've got your new logo, and you're thinking, what's the what's the product that you're making as, as Blue Dot gets started? I mean, we know what it is today, but yeah. like, what was it at first in your in your mind? Well, I you know we went early on. We were thinking it might be smaller things, and we were looking at um, a company called Umbra that was mm -hmm. that was sort of a sure. earlier pioneer and mm -hmm. sort of modern housewares and things like that. Right, and and. Um, Finally, I think determined that we had a, a more solid interest in in larger objects like you know furniture. Right. Um, but so we coalesced around that idea, and um, we wanted you know we wanted it we wanted to create a brand. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know there weren't many um, great brands in in that space. Um, there are a lot of great consumer brands in other categories, but not in furniture. Um, so we thought there was an opportunity to do that. Um, we wanted to start with a collection that was broad enough. You know. 10 to 15 pieces that spanned everywhere from small a small accessory to a large you know room divider bookcase um, that was the kind of initial brief and then 
making design democratic. I mean, the, the sort of price point we were aiming mm -hmm. for was really the crux of what we were all about. Um, at the time, there was IKEA on the low end and, you know, uh, European imports on the high end that you can only buy with a designer in a right. designer showroom. And, um, you know, there's this vast middle and, um, you know, we were frustrated consumers ourselves. So we thought, you know, there's there's got to be a, a spot in there where there's enough people like us to make to make enough of a living uh, doing this thing. So and that was and that was part of it that you so you you liked modern design, right? right. And and you and I never know how much when people say, oh, in the beginning, we couldn't find furniture for ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. I never know sort of where that where the truth in that story really is. But you can tell me. <laughs> but so, I mean, you in you were sort of looking for things that right. you liked yeah. yourself. Right. right. And and as you say, you saw sort of higher priced European product that wasn't so readily available. And mm -hmm. certainly not to consumers at right. the time. Even even today, it's not so readily available. Right. Uh, and on the lower end, Ikea or, or some of the other brands that perhaps quality-wise weren't right. what you were looking to and, do. And Ikea was only on the East Coast and the West Coast then. I mean, then there was nothing shippable. Like you had to you know, be in New Jersey or be in LA. Right. Uh, so there really was not much. I right. mean, there was no, uh, I'm not sure Pottery Barn wasn't around and mm. you know. CB2, CB, West Elm. None of these, mm. none of these. So the landscape, yeah, the landscape then was so much different than it is today. Yeah. So yeah. If, if you're talking to a, somebody who's 20, right. it's hard for them to understand what it was like in the early 90s when it was modern design, it was either Ikea or it was really, really expensive. And everything in the middle price point was much more traditional. So we, we, I, I think the, the retail, the sort of apparel, retail apparel analogy was that you had kind of Old Navy and you had Armani right. or Prada. Right. So imagine if that were the, your choices as a, as a consumer. But you could either be here or you could yeah. be way up here. Yeah. And it seemed illogical to us that there was no kind of J. Crew or, you know, there was nothing in that, Theory, middle, right. in that middle realm. Yeah. Um, and there really wasn't. I mean, we couldn't, we, we searched and tried to find it. We were furnishing our apartments and trying mm -hmm. to find these things. And so we looked at the high end European product and thought, uh, you know, this is really nice, but it, 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 it's really expensive. It takes 20 weeks to get it. Right. You have to have an architect or a designer to take it to the design center to go up in the elevator and this is completely inaccessible and, yeah. it, and it's pretentious like it's sort of like well are you good enough to buy this furniture <laughs> yeah. or not yeah so that was that became a part of our branding was we were not only was the product and the price point of the product reacting to that marketplace but it was also the branding was reacting to it and how do we have a brand that's more approachable and friendly right. and how can right. we say to people yeah it's modern but you're welcome to join us you know come yeah. participate in this with us it's not you know, stand at the door and we'll tell you when you can come in. So, and, and so where did that whole sensibility come from for all of you? I mean, was that, was that something that you sort of picked up while you were in, in Asia traveling around together? Because I mean, there was this whole sort of democratization of design notion that you had very early on mm -hmm. and, and wanting to be sort of much more approachable and, and also sort of, sort of playful and, and, and fun too, which was mm -hmm. definitely part of your part of your brand, right? I mean, it is mm -hmm. part of your brand. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it comes from our personalities. I mean, it's basically how we are as people. Okay. Uh, you know, um, we're, you know, we take our work seriously. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We like to have fun. We like to make fun of ourselves. Yeah. Um, it's just how we are. Uh, so it wasn't like we mapped out the market and said, oh, this brand personality is, is missing and we should do this brand personality. It kind of grew out a, a little bit more of just who we are as right. people. Um, I mean, it, it, and it also was a reaction to what is in the market, that mm -hmm. it was, you know, the market took itself unbelievably seriously. <laughs> you know, I mean, here we are designing coffee tables and bookcases. I mean, yeah. it's not like we're designing, 
you know, medical devices. Right. I mean, those those designers are true heroes. <laughs> you know, but right. you know, we're designing you know a table. Right. So uh, you know, as a designer, you don't really need to wear a cape if you're uh, you know designing a table. So <laughs> um, we just were sort of poking fun at that notion of the celebrity designer, um, and, and it's partly the reason that that none of our work we put our individual names on. Not right. um, partly because really we designed as a group from the beginning, so mm -hmm. it was very hard to decide well, well is this really your design Maurice or is this John's design or is this Charlie's design right. um, and in the beginning it was the three of you yeah right right, right. and so you're all sort of collaborating on designs and and sort of where all this was going and and where are we geographically at the time so we're all in Minneapolis, in Minneapolis. well How'd we, we were still in Chicago but yeah. I was, so right just before we started Blue Dot Charlie was in Arizona working for an architect I was in Chicago with my firm uh, or just starting my firm, and John had been had gone from Boston to Chicago for grad school, and then to Minneapolis. Right, okay. and and I had quit my job maybe nine months earlier, and to devote myself to to Blue Dot, and and these guys wisely at the time said, "That's great, let's keep working together, but we'll keep our day jobs right. for so now. We'll hold on to yeah, our and, steady and paychecks." We worked for nine or ten months to to design our, our and prototype our first collection, which we debuted at. ICFF, the right. once a year trade show in New York yeah. for contemporary furniture in May of 97. Um, and that was, um, you know, that was the first time we ever showed the world what we've been up to. And, um, and that the reception at that show was incredibly strong, stronger than we thought. So it was clear leaving there that we, we had struck a chord that this, this unmet need in the market existed right. and, uh, and that we had this, you know, something that was probably worth pursuing. So what did you, and I, and I love that you sort of had a little focus group at the time, yeah, right, right, right before, yeah, yeah. to sort of get some, some feedback, and you had the room and board people, right. and, mm -hmm. and, yeah. Uh, so what did, you, what did you produce to show at the, at the first ICFF in 1997? So we had about a dozen pieces, okay. um, coffee tables, we had quite a few coffee tables, um, bookcase, couple bookcases maybe. A CD rack? You might want to tell your, oh. your, your listeners <laughs> what a CD is. Another explainer <laughs> that we'll have to do, yeah. Compact discs were something. Yeah, it took so. up a lot of room. Um, so you had a rack for them. Yeah, great. So you had that. So yeah, had so we had a dozen pieces that we'd essentially, I don't know if we'd made all those prototypes ourselves, or you had kind of subbed out some of the parts maybe. Yeah, a couple we made ourselves and some we subbed out. Um, we, had, you know, we had the beginnings of what our manufacturing partners might look like. They were local uh, mill shops basically in Minneapolis and some okay. steel suppliers, powder coaters, whatnot. Um, but you know, we had one of each. And uh, you know, as we say now, like from the outside looking in, like we looked like kind of a real company. We had a slightly right. bigger booth than a rookie booth. We had business cards, an identity, a logo, yeah, uh, yeah, sort of a mini really catalog. Yeah, but if you pulled back the curtain, there was like nothing behind <laughs> the curtain. No inventory. No, there. Nothing. nothing. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Yeah, we didn't have order forms, so you know we didn't expect orders because we were told that the show was more about press, right. um, and we were really just anxious to get feedback. We'd been mm -hmm. toiling away; we just wanted to know what people thought about what we were up to. And um, right away, there was interest in people wanting to write orders. So we hustled out and made order forms at Kinko's and came back and were writing orders and, you know, uh, promising delivery in four to six weeks. We had no inventory, you know, <laughs> but it was exhilarating. It was really Oh, I'm sure really that great. must have been yeah. so exciting. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's worth pointing out that, that at that time, so we knew what we were making, which was furniture. Right. And we wanted to design, we were designing everything ourselves, but it was a wholesale business, right? So it was a trade show for retailers. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's kind of a different place where we started than we are today. Yes. Right, where we have our own retail stores, our own e-commerce, and you know we're we're selling and marketing and direct 
directly to the consumer. Right. But at that time, it was all so these were all retailers. Uh, from all over the country that were buying exactly that had come to ICFF right. And, right. They, and they were buying luckily you ran out to Kinko's and got some order right. forms so you yeah. could take those orders and then what you had to rush home to Minneapolis and tell all these furniture makers that they needed to get to work on making yeah. your orders exactly pretty yeah. much I mean I, I turned to Charlie I knew Maurice was probably not a candidate because he had just started his architecture firm and had employees and all the rest but I thought Charlie was uh, a better a better, <laughs> better target, target a better target <laughs> I said how quickly can you you know move from Arizona and move to Minneapolis because right. it's still me I was in, yeah I had set up a I had set up a, a, a smaller like a little warehouse in a bigger space to be ready had it teed up um, Charlie said you know yeah um, you know I'll, I'll do it and so he moved up with his wife and his young daughter and their dog and and uh, we you know opened up this slightly larger space and started to make our first round of production and um, he had to, you know, figure out how to do health insurance and how to do accounting and how to, you know. Sure. So, I mean, had you, had you gotten incorporated? Were you actually? We were incorporated. We were, okay. Yeah. We were incorporated. But that and, was about and had it. You, had you put up sort of capital? Had you all kind of put in money? Or how was, how was the financial side was working? What 50, was 50 grand. 50 yeah. grand. Right. Yeah. Okay. So where did that come from? That was just, just everyone the pitching three of us. in? The three of us. Okay. Yeah. So the three of you come up with 50 grand and we get Charlie to move <laughs> right. to Minneapolis. Yeah. And, and, and we bought $35,000 worth of cardboard cartons. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we had 15 grand left. <laughs> well, that was the other thing, right? You had to like, not only had to make it, you had to ship Package all these it. orders. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. So we would, we would, or I should say they at the time, you know, right. Charlie and John were finding all these vendors and then the vendors would make the product. Okay. Uh, and then they would shuffle it between. So let's say they would buy the plywood and they would send it to somebody to cut the plywood and then they'd send it to somebody who would finish the plywood and then the parts would come back to the headquarters and then all the other parts would come in. And the headquarters job. is yeah. not the right word. <laughs> well, so and, and right, and what was happening at the headquarters? Right. I, I mean, so that's just where you guys them. were. Just and, the headquarters. There was a there was a dead raccoon in the uh, elevator shaft that we never were never Somewhere. able to get out. But <laughs> excellent, yeah. I love it. So so some atmosphere. Yeah, some atmosphere. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's just the, but just the two of them. But so much. all the yeah. all the production was being farmed out. Right, it was. To, right. to it sounds like multiple to, vendors right. Right. would work on different yeah. stages of the product, and then would finished product come back. To right. you at the headquarters, it and then, would, and then you'd be packing it up and, and shipping it out. Exactly, right. and, okay. and early on, in the earliest days, we were a lot of our products were ready to assemble. They, they were flat right. pack, uh, sort of a higher quality than IKEA, but nevertheless right. required some assembly. And and that sort of clever assembly was a part of our DNA from as designers from mm -hmm. early on, figuring out clever ways to do that. Um, but so yeah, we were kind of collating all these parts into boxes, right. uh, these finished products. So Charlie and I would spend the day, spend the daytime, you know responding to inquiries or customers or you know doing sort of more administrative stuff and then we'd spend from four o'clock until 10 or 11 at night every night in the in the sweaty warehouse packaging packing, packing, packing boxes, boxes. Right. yeah getting ready to ship our first orders and right. you know we had promised them in four to six weeks and we weren't anywhere close and when six weeks rolled around oh, and people course. started to call and ask yeah, about where, their orders right. and no and no parts had come into the warehouse to collate and package yet yeah and luckily um, ups went on strike at this time, and so we were able to. So you were able to blame them. We blame them for <laughs> right. about two. We went strike for about two weeks. Yeah, it's sitting it's on the dock. Wow. Really. Oh, <laughs> oh man, man, we wish we could this. get it to you. Yeah. It's yeah. All there. We just want to bill oh, you for it. We want to get yeah. it to you. Yeah. So uh, it was fun. It was like just a really intense time, and we made tons of mistakes. So the first batch of production, the very very first batch of parts that came back, super simple product, at two wood parts and two steel parts and the two holes where. You know where the screws are, they had to line up yeah. and, and they were off by a quarter of an inch oh, like a thousand parts or something like that oh. 
And so we were panicking and, and uh, we figured out how to solve that. But um, we just made, for the first few years, it was just a collection of a lot of mistakes. A lot of uh, mistakes. Uh, which was fun. That was really you know, exhausting, right. but super exciting too, because yeah. you're kind of figuring it out as you go. Yeah. yeah. But, it, but it was great to be, um, for you know, the two of them, especially then, and then as I joined later, when it was still small, that we did all these things ourselves, is now that the company scales, a lot of those problems are this, those mistakes. You can still make the same mistakes, it's just the, the numbers are bigger. Sure. And uh, so it gives us a lot of kind of insight into all the things that happen in our business that we still know that if you're making this part in one facility and you're making this part in another one, that those holes need to line up. Yeah. Right. And now that yeah. we're just making more pieces, right. but but well, so and, and is production still done in, in roughly the same way? Are you still have sort of multiple vendors that are making all the components for you? Well, then... we do. We for the most part now we have vendors that they consolidate the parts and then we receive finished packaged product. Okay. So rather than people in our facility packaging the thing, they're packaged by a by a supplier. Okay. Yeah, so we receive completed right completed product. Now. Okay. Just because we have we have two thousand sellable items right now, so for us to try to manage all of those in house and the wow. cartons for all those things and all yeah. the little bitty pieces of foam yeah. and packaging, of course. So, so your packaging was was part of part of your brand. You're, you had fun instructions, and right, and you had fun packaging. And so, who was behind all of that? Who was the who was the creative force that was doing all of that? Because. I think, was we, all I think we shared, I think we, we would all say we all were part of that. I mean, it was, again, you know, building a brand and, and, and creating a, a personality mm -hmm. uh, was important to us. And, and this notion of it being fun and, and not, you know, everyone's invited to our party and we're not too cool for school. And yeah. that, whole, that whole thing was, was important. We wanted, we wanted people after they bought a Blue Dot piece, open it up and put it together to, to be able to kind of come away from it and describe Blue Dot like they describe a friend. Like to really have a, a personality behind the behind the brand, right? So uh, we had no marketing budget, so we couldn't do ads or uh, print ads or anything else. So really, our opportunity was packaging and assembly instructions mm -hmm. and how our hardware was packaged. Our hardware came in cool little cloth branded bags instead of the standard uh, plastic bag. So we just viewed every other, every one of those little decisions as a design opportunity and an opportunity to kind of tell our story. Um, so yeah, we've been and then it's been a kind of a part of our approach. And you saw how IKEA had kind of handled instructions. You thought, "Ooh, we could do a much, much better job than that." Well, yeah, right. Well, I'm not sure if we did. I don't know if we did. Yeah. <laughs> Ours were more funny. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Maybe. And, not and your useful. your pieces were much easier to put together. There weren't nearly as many parts. And Most of them were pieces. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> okay. So so at, at what point, Maurice, are you finally able to say, "Okay, I'm going to leave my architecture firm and also come up right, to, right. to Minneapolis"? Right. I mean, so yeah, that's kind of a funny story. We. Uh, so we were doing this. I was kind of putting in whatever time I could. I would come out to Minneapolis every month or so or every three months, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, the practice is going along. Uh, and then at one point I was down in High Point, And I don't know, I forget where, if you were busy with a customer, but a, a camera crew came in and they were from Style Network. And they interviewed me about the, about, you know, we had a booth or a showroom at High Point, uh -huh. at the furniture market, and they interviewed okay. me about the product. So anyway, that went on. Nothing came of it. Then about a year later, um, I got a call and somebody from the Style Network and they said they were they were doing a hosted design show on the Style Network and they were looking for a host uh, and they wanted somebody who was in the business. They didn't want to hire a, an actor. Right. They wanted to hire someone who was in design and they were going through old 
tape and they found me and they were calling me as long, along with lots of other people. Okay. And would I come to LA for a couple of days for an audition? And at the, you know, I was in Chicago and LA was glamorous and warm and I thought, <laughs> what's sure. the downside? I'll go out there, yeah. a couple, couple days, all expenses paid, why not? Thinking I'd never get this thing. Meanwhile, we were sweating our asses off. <laughs> I was gonna say, they're the, bad. with the smelly <laughs> with the smelly squirrel, right, right, right. yeah, with yeah. the raccoon and yeah. the. They benefited ultimately, though. But, yeah, right. So, so you're off in L.A. So, you can so I go to L.A. L.A. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and and I get and I get the gig. Uh, so the deal was when I signed the contract was that I had to transition out of my firm, and my my wife and family and I had to move to Los Angeles. That was part of my contract. Um, but what happened was after we we did one season, uh, the executive producer who was sort of above my producer, who was really we were aligned with what the show was, and it was really a it was really a, a, a television magazine. So they're different, sort of like a magazine has a aspirational part, and they may have a market watch, and they may have a you know what's the best stacking chair. It had all these different right. pieces, but it was meant to be really um, we were we were trying to be smart about it. We were trying to be serious about this. I mean, it was a fun show, but it was still serious. And then they, the, this new executive producer basically said, I want this to be, uh, I want it to be more like trading spaces. I want it to be emotional. I want people to cry. Um, and I don't want you to ever use the word design again. You have to use the word decorate from now on. Oh, because that sounded too high. Yeah. Minded. So I picked right. up the phone and I called this friend of mine who was an entertainment attorney who had negotiated my contract. And I said, how can I get out of this contract? <laughs> And get so me out of this deal. I, I did because I thought, you know, this isn't what I want to do. Um, this isn't how I think about design. And I, I don't want to be in the TV business. I, I did this because I wanted to talk about design and get design into the world and have people right. learn and, and talk about design. So I was essentially, I had, I'd started to close down my practice. I had taken no new clients. And um, so I was at this weird place where I would have to like kind of restart my firm completely almost. And it gave me a chance to think about what I wanted to do. Um, I got a nice severance, so I took some time off and just thought about it. And uh, so I, I called John and said, you know, is, is Blue Dot big enough? Can, can Blue Dot afford another founder? A former TV star. That's right. <laughs> I mean, With a voice coach. I, I mean, that's it. I mean, at this point. <laughs> Hundreds like, of thousands. Did you still have your voice coach then? Or? No, I had to fire the voice <laughs> yeah. coach. Yeah, but he's got big attorneys. Right, and he's, right. and he's a, a big ask. I'm yeah, sure you should have seen his, his contract. Oh, yeah. I, can, I can imagine. My agent was, I think it was Endeavor was the name of the company. Yeah, I right, forget. Yeah. No. Um, so, you, so you call up the, the vast Blue Dot offices right. yes. and say, is there, is there room for me? But it was, I mean, before, even, even before that, if, if, you know, in the early days, we just, it wasn't, there weren't funds available to pay, you know, three of us to be there. And, sure. And we couldn't, we couldn't do it. So... It was sort of a question of whether it was a good time in the in the sort of the life of, of Blue Dot. Okay, uh, did it make sense? Um, and then maybe you should you should tell yeah, the rest because so, it was really you. And, and there really wasn't enough money to afford all three of us, and it, it wasn't. wasn't like we were paying ourselves a lot. I mean, I think Charlie and I were probably paying ourselves forty thousand dollars a year at that right. point or something. Okay, okay. I mean, we had a we we had some employees then, maybe seven or eight employees at that point. Um, but at the time, I knew Charlie, who was, was who's a real uh, you know designer at heart. Mm -hmm. But um, in those early years, we're spending ninety percent of our time on things that were not design, right? Just keeping the plates spinning and keeping the business sure, running right. and running a business, uh, yeah, packing boxes, right. Yeah. right? So yeah, he was. I knew he was unhappy, and he and I were teaching a design class at the University of Minnesota together. And after one of the classes, I um, just sat down with him and said, "Hey, there's this opportunity, and it doesn't seem like you're you're happy with not." you know that you, you want to spend more time designing um, Maurice is interested in coming to join us we can't afford all three of us but 
if you wanted, only if you wanted, to um, get back into architecture, spend more time designing, and and leave Blue Dot, then you know there would be an opportunity for for you and he to basically you know trade trade okay. places. So, oh. um, but you know if if not, we're cool going the way we're going. I mean, right. Charlie had really paid his dues, and you know there was no way that I was going to ever sure uh, ask him to move on. But it was just an opportunity for him to move on if he wanted to, and he. He literally, I think, started crying, and he was sort of relieved uh, oh, because wow. I think he felt that, but never okay. felt but obliged to obliged sure. to stick in with stick in yeah. with us. So okay. it was a it was a real relief for him, and then, oh. so basically, uh, he and Maurice um, traded careers. You know, he Charlie started his own architecture practice and started with a flat pack house, which was a prefab house. Uh, product basically right. that was sort okay. of modeled after Blue Dot. It was kind of like a large version, a of large Blue Dot. scale yeah. version of it. Wow. Right. Okay. And then Maurice came and, and uh, took Charlie's role. So and and what year was that? Or, or 2002. 2002. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we've been around five years, five six years. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Charlie Charlie phases out. Former TV star and architect Maurice phases in. Right. Yep. And, and and you and you begin to to really sort of grow the company from there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we still. I think the still next three, four, five years were still tough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, now you're still making things for other retailers at this point, right? Pretty much. So it's all yes. just yeah. right. Really? You're a whole, you're a wholesaler up until and, 10 and years who were your who were your big customers sort of early on? Who were the people that sort of mostly mom and pop stores? So really small furniture just, stores, yeah, independent and things stores that, around okay. the country. Typically, the, the the kind of cool design shop in, in a given city, mm-hmm. um, and you know some bigger cities might have more than one. New York, right. we probably we had the Conrad shop, we had Moss, oh, we had uh, God, amalgamated amalgamated home, which was down in in the West Village, and um, you know, in, in San Francisco, Zinc Detail. Yeah. So, okay. uh, but uh, yeah, those types of stores. We were we were also doing um, some private label work. We had some large retailers approach us early on, oh. who, who asked us if we would do um, custom collections for them, kind of right. under their brand. And of course, as a you know, scrappy startup, we were like, sure, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you, you want Louis the Fifteenth? Oh, yeah, we can do that. Louis. Yeah. Louis. No, well, we didn't do that. Didn't that's do that. not what they want. No, no, no. Right? no. But so they liked your, they liked yeah. your look, and it was yeah. and, and Gordon Siegel. The yeah. founder of Crate and Barrel yeah. was probably the, I think that was probably the first real serious conversation we had, right, at High Point. Yeah. He came into the booth and essentially said, would you do something for Crate and Barrel? And the first collection we did, we, we literally designed a Blue Dot collection, so it looked like a Blue Dot line right. for Crate and Barrel. Okay. Which, of course, didn't do well. Co- co-branded or not? Or so it wasn't no, Blue it was, Dot for Crate and Barrel or uh, was it Crate and Barrel? No, it was not branded Blue Dot. It was... Okay. It was, brand, it was but it was it, it had a lot of our DNA, so okay. it was it was too modern for right. Crate and Barrel's audience, and it and it didn't um, do as well as we had hoped, <laughs> okay. or as well as they had hoped. Okay. Uh, okay. So, but yeah. but I mean, how exciting! Yeah. yeah. Gordon Siegel, I mean, a well, legend, an icon. And we asked, approach. so we asked for a second try. Okay. And then we said, let's put on the Crate and Barrel hat, and let's think about who your customer really is. Right. And let's design for that customer. So it's still something that we feel good about and, and we're interested in, but let's right. make it work for yeah. that Okay, okay. good, good for it, you. And so it was their best bedroom collection for, I don't know, five or seven years. I don't know. It was, yeah, it was great. It was very successful. And they're a terrific company and unbelievably nice people and great customers of ours for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we're thankful for that. And then Target was the other uh, other retailer. We They're in our hometown. And right. we did the first collections we did for them were sort of back to college, they were branded Blue Dot, like mm-hmm. little mini collabs, kind right. of. Um, and those those did well. Um, and, and John should tell you the secret to selling to Target, how you get in the door. 
Yeah, I think everyone would like to know the secret to getting in the door. <laughs> I don't think the secret would work anymore. Oh, but... <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> right? Yeah. What did no, you we were. This is back in the day when Charlie and I were like, you know, sweating our tails off in the in the warehouse. We we're literally working it across from each other in he the office. He seems to bring that up a lot, Maurice. That they were, they were sweating their tails off. And, I mean, needle so you with that. Was, Still I, to this day, I, think, I just feel like so many years later you would have worked through this, but obviously no, no, not. No, no. no. Okay, so I'm working. So you guys were sweating your tails off yeah and 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 i said you know i'm gonna call target and charlie's like well, what do you mean i'm like i don't know i'm just gonna which, which is in minneapolis right, yeah. right. we're in so minneapolis hometown company. Yeah. Right, right, right. so you figure so what I, do you have to lose we'll yeah. call target dial 411 you know give me the number for target's headquarters <laughs> i get the number for target's headquarters a real that. a real human being actually answers the phone uh, again those were the days <laughs> right, right. And, yeah. and i say can i speak with your furniture buyer and they patch me through to the furniture buyer and sure enough the furniture buyer picks up the phone and I introduce myself and tell him about Blue Dot. And she says, oh, that's so strange that you call because my boss's boss just put an article about you guys on my desk. And that, that her boss's boss was Ron Johnson, who was the one oh who went God. on to start sure, do all the Apple stores. Yeah, and, absolutely. And uh, so um, she invited us in for a meeting and, and we were came in and kind of told her what we were all about. And that's how that started. So it, obviously couldn't do that now probably, but. But so that was, lucky. that was incredible. Yeah, and and so there there had been a like a local paper article written about you, right? And right. Okay, and so yeah. they had seen that, and and they said, sure, come on in. Yeah, and then you started making a collection for them. We did, and which and, you did for a while. We did, and you know, I mean, in Target had then I don't know how many stores, probably like eight or nine hundred stores. They have almost two thousand now, but mm-hmm. uh, we weren't really ready, frankly, to be a supplier to Target. Um, and, and we were producing these collections too. We weren't just designing them. So, right. um, so we would design them. We would then we'd find a, a manufacturing partner who would make it. Yeah, right. All locally still. Right? No, this no. for Target. We we had to do it in, in oh, Asia. For Target so that was our had first. To. Yeah, yeah. That was kind so of our was... first foray into uh, into into working over there. And um, but it was it was exciting and hairy. Uh, I'm sure. And it was kind of amazing that they actually put that much confidence in us frankly back then <laughs> we must have faked it uh, quite well but um but we were able to you know do it all on time and ship on time and and um, those collections did pretty well and um they've been uh, an, an amazing customer well so time. and and what was that first big order from target like like how much how much did they want what did they, i mean was it like some big number that you had never made that many pieces before oh yeah i mean you know yeah thousands they need thousands. thousands of something right yeah it was before for blue dot brand we were making we never 50, sold a thousand 50, 50 of something <laughs> right. or 100 of something so yeah yeah albeit at a much lower price point but sure uh, but nevertheless it was that was kind of new territory for us yeah absolutely so you so you went back to asia funny enough all these years later yeah. right and yeah. fa- and found suppliers yeah. And, yeah. and vendors yeah. at a time where that wasn't so commonplace right, right? i right. mean no. okay yeah. Did they, were they able to sort of point you in some directions, or who helped you figure out? We how basically to, networked. Yeah. Well, okay. I think from having our um, showroom in High Point, you you would have folks that were sort of agents for factories in those parts of the world come through your showrooms and pitch, you know, say, hey, I can help you, uh, you know, connect right. you with the right factory in Asia if you wanted to produce something. And we didn't have a need to make anything in Asia then. We were making mm-hmm. Blue Dot brand and you know our own stuff in in the United States uh, for the most part. So. Um, yeah, we, we connected with a British guy who was lived in Hong Kong, and and I flew over and you know went and visited a couple of factories and 
kind of camped out there for a little while. Right. Yeah. As you have to, right? Yeah. And yeah. Sort of see how it's all going to work and make sure they can make it to your right. specifications yeah. and they're really going to make it. Right. And, right. Right. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. Know. Once you leave, are they right. really going to keep working? <laughs> right, and right, do, right. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but we'll be right back. Discover the workspaces and business tools powering exceptional excellence in interior design. Fuego's 18,000-square-foot Park Avenue studio includes beautiful workspaces and material and product samples from thousands of top A&D vendors in the world's largest lending material library. Now available to interior designers everywhere, Fuego's modern project management software was tailored to solve the business needs of groundbreaking designers at Fuego Studio. Visit FuegoStudio.com to book a tour. That's F-U-I-G-O Studio.com. And now, on with the show. So, Target, I mean, that's, that's huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then you really knew you had something at this point, right? I mean... Well, right. And, you know, I mean, our original idea was, was, was uh, our, own, our own brand and our own collection. Mm-hmm. But, of course, when you're bootstrapping a company like we were and starting yeah. with $50,000 of your own money, when two of the best retailers in the nation want you to work with them, you obviously say yes. Yeah. So... Um, that was really key. Those those relationships were really key to help finance the growth of the of the business. And there were periods where we were really much more focused on on that on that business than we were on our own collection. Right. Just because we didn't have the bandwidth to be, do both. Sure. But but it kept the company growing and kept the company moving forward um, till we got to a point where we could kind of turn our attention back to our own collection at, as well as continue doing mm. work for them. And and. Was there ever a time where you thought about seeking outside capital, or I mean, did you really believe that you could or organically grow it uh, with just the working with Target, working with Crate and Barrel, and, and, and scaling? I mean, did you did you wish that you had some outside money helping you, or or did you were you so happy you didn't? I mean, <laughs> well, where did, we did you end up with it? We did. Go ahead. Well, we did take some. We did a couple of friends and family rounds. Okay. So we sold some equity, very small piece of equity to friends and family basically in two different tranches, right? It was yeah. about three years apart. I think probably raised a total of a million bucks or a million two in two different time periods. Okay. But we didn't do the first that first friends and family raise until about five years in. So um, um, I, I had been lucky in the sense that I had, I had um, some assets that I could use to pledge against uh, a, a bank loan. So we used bank loans for a while right. to finance the growth. Right. And then a couple of injections of Small Which again backwards. is what companies used to do back in the day, right? right? right. You used to have to go to the bank and right. borrow yeah. the money, yeah. and show them your business plan, and, right. right, and how right. you were going to grow it. Yeah. Okay, so you had some collateral you were able to put up that right. made you look like a safe risk, and and that helped. Yeah. It did, yeah. And then some generous friends and family. It sounds right. yeah. like yeah. so yeah. people really believed in what you were doing, and 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 they got caught up in uh, what I'm sure must have been a lot of fun and excitement, yeah. right? I yeah. Mean, yeah, watching it grow. And that was that was key because I think once we once we took that first batch from friends and family, like then you then it really gets serious. I mean, from our perspective, it was like you know we this is real money, yeah. And and these are for people that we love and are friends of ours. So yeah, like we can't screw this up, you know. And, and I want to hold my head up high at Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> you know. So uh, it was yeah. good because it forced uh, even a sort of another notch of discipline, mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of becoming kind of a real company and really really. Um, focusing in so um, it was a good thing okay and so then you started to, to swing back and, and focus on building your your own brand mm-hmm. uh, again right, right, right. right yeah that was sort of uh, 
mid 2000s probably we yeah. started to 2005 2006 okay um, and then we, we we started to realize that so on the blue dot brand we were selling to these independent retailers all over the country right um, and that there weren't new independent retailers popping up at a very fast rate and the existing retailers we had weren't growing you know they weren't doubling their business every year so we right. started to realize that our business is now, or the growth of our business is now tied to the growth of those businesses. And that felt limited. But we did really, we, we believe that there was more demand and more uh, people out there that wanted to buy our furniture. So we decided we should think about how we can sell directly to those customers. Um, and really the store in New York was the first time that we, yeah. that we did that. Well, we always had an e-commerce site, I mean, uh, um, from earlier, earlier days. So we were selling online direct. Uh, from the probably well from the late late nineties I think or early two thousands yeah, when we yeah. started okay so so pretty early on yeah right I you, mean you were selling directly and and was that a was that a challenge with your retail store with your people you were selling to how did they feel about you it was, having it was always a little bit of a sore point okay. but it, but it was it was because it was always there it, they when they signed on with us they knew it was part of the deal okay you know and you know we always felt that there was enough to go around for mm -hmm. everybody and that we weren't really you know our marketing was equally driving people into their stores right. as much as our website was maybe right. taking a sale or two away right. here or there and, and that it would all kind of work its way out. And so people would complain about it, but it, would, but it was fine. Yeah. And, and in those days, were, were people buying that much online? No, it was, right? a, it wasn't it was a, big... a tiny piece of <laughs> yes. right? Yeah, yeah. And we actually tried to make it structurally um, advantageous for those customers, for, the, for our retail customers. So right. we, would make, we would make buying on the website actually more expensive than buying through your store. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so our argument was that if they're still buying from us at a higher price point, then maybe you should look at what, what you might be doing wrong. Right, okay. <laughs> but yeah. we gave them every opportunity to get the business because we, we wanted to support them. Sure. But we had to explain to them that we only have stores in so many markets and there's this whole other part of the country that we would like to sell our product in. Right, okay. And that website enabled that. But I think the fact that, that the web was there when they signed on as customers kind of gave us a pass. Yeah. yeah, that was part of the deal. We didn't bring it in later. Right, you know. right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. But we did open the first store about 10 years ago. So um, in uh, 2008, yep. I think. On the day Bernie Madoff was arrested. Yeah, in Soho. So spectacular timing. So on really good time yeah. to yeah. open Bear, a, a Bear retail Stern's store. And Bear what else collapsed. was going on at that time? Let me think. Uh, oh, Lehman Brothers was collapsing. <laughs> right. And the uh, stock market We was should have done a little more macroeconomic yeah. research. <laughs> God. I, well, we figured if we can if we can make it work in, in this that crappy of a time, then then it would work uh, for sure. Right. Uh, so... And it did. I mean, 2009, the Soho store would, actually was was profitable, right? Uh, and you know, so that was so that was the first store. That was the yeah. first store, right? Twenty five hundred square feet. Twenty five hundred square feet, right. and that was 2008. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ten year lease. Ten year lease. Monstrous amount of money. Yeah. yeah. Well, it seemed like a, for sure. I mean, the first rent check yeah. was thirty five thousand dollars. I remember writing the check and thinking. Oh man, I got to write another one of these in thirty days. Like, get at right. it, you know, start selling you stuff. Sell a lot of coffee tables. <laughs> yeah, pay that rent. And, and the security deposit because we were we were not an established national brand. Yeah. So the security deposit was one year of you rent. You kidding? One year of rent. Yeah, four hundred grand. Four hundred thousand dollars. Four hundred thousand dollars you had to yeah. come up with for the security deposit. And they sat on that for ten years. For ten years. Yeah. Yeah. Did they pay us interest on that? I no. Yeah. I don't think so. No, uh, of course, interest rates went to zero. They've only just started to rise this year. Yeah. So, so the whole time you've been getting no interest. Wow. Wow. 
Okay, so you so you open up a store. I mean, you must have been laughing with the, with everything that was going on. Like, yeah, what a yeah. great time to open a right. store yeah. here in Soho. But so you but the store did well. The store did right. well, and, and and I think part of it might have been that that um, people who would normally shop at the high end were coming down. They were sort of trading down a little right. bit, not really sure what was going on, um, and we and we presented a great deal. Yeah, uh, and so two thousand nine was a fine year in that store. Yeah. And it just kept growing, yeah. So it was the first time that we were able to present all of our work together in one space uh, the way we wanted to present it. Right. Um, as opposed to um, when we sold wholesale, you know, they would pick four or five of our pieces and then mix it in with other people's pieces and pile sometimes picture frames and candlesticks and other things on top of it. It's sometimes hard to even see the, right. see the designs. So yeah. uh, it was nice. But we, we, our, our, our product line was incredibly... Small. I mean, we had two sofas to offer. Uh, we we didn't make rugs. We didn't make lighting. So, so you didn't have all those accessories. No, to go with no. It, it was very hard to make a store look good when yeah. you don't have the sort of complete uh, lineup. So right. um, that that experience of opening that store helped kick kick that sort of product development mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. gear uh, to flesh out our our product line, our assortment, and and really change the way we thought about developing products. So as a wholesaler, you can develop individual products that don't all have to go together. Mm -hmm. So you develop this collection, it has a certain look, and maybe you pick this color scheme for that. You put that aside, you design another collection, you do a different color scheme here, and you just keep doing that, and that's fine because the retailer is the curator. The retailer takes the pieces and they're yeah. responsible, and they're yeah. usually multi-brand retailers, so they're using our product as well as others, putting them all together and making them look nice in a setting. So when we took all those different pieces and sort of put them in a room, you know, the first store, and we're sort of like, oh, this is, it's like the color scheme was a little bit like bad Skittles. Right. You know, it's just like th those colors made sense independent, you know, independently, yeah. but when you mix them all together. Uh, so we really had to start thinking about our collection now in a very different way, as opposed to thinking about individual items and, assort and, and collections. We had to think about the entire assortment and how all the colors and fabrics and finishes would work, you know, across all these things. How it all worked together. So, yeah. so yeah. thinking about... Uh, of the things that we already made, we had to think about how we do that. How do we do this differently? And that took time mm -hmm. because we had all this inventory and product, legacy product, and we had to slowly kind of design our way out of all those things. Yeah. And then, as John pointed out, we also had um, things that we were missing. We didn't have anything over thirty inches. Everything was, the, you know, the top of a chair, the top of a sofa, the top of a table. Right. So you'd look across the store, and it was like you could shoot a gun through the One store, height. thirty-two <laughs> inches, and you wouldn't hit anything. So we needed to get taller things, you know, yeah. lighting, and, and I think we quickly went out and made a coat rack and floor coverings, and there was nothing on the table, so we had to start making accessories. And that took, that probably took four years before yeah. we really turned the, kind of turned that to a place where it was starting to look good. Right. So four or five years of product development, and you, and you start to add to the, to the assortment. Right. And, and then at, at that point, did you have a great big expansion plan of, oh, we're going to be in Australia and we're going to be, I mean, at that point, were you thinking, yeah, we're going to take this on the road and open a bunch of stores or? I don't think it was that aggressive. I think it was more incremental. Right. Yeah. I mean, we knew we want, we, we, you know, the, the first store was an experiment to see how we would do. And we didn't know anything about retail. So we we're learning right. it as we, as we went. I, I don't think we opened our second store maybe until four years in or something like that. And that was at Los Angeles was yeah. the second one. Uh, and we got more serious about e-commerce. We actually mm -hmm. went out and hired a you know somebody who knew something about e-commerce oh, to, to run it. Yeah, okay. Right. Um, and this so, right? was and this is also developer, yeah, maybe. yeah. Right. also an important turning, person. turning yeah. point where where as a company we got to a size where 
uh, and a profitability where we could actually afford really talented people. Right. And and um, you know people that made one hundred fifty thousand dollars or more, let's say, <laughs> and. Uh, and once we were able to bring folks like that under our team and see the power of what great people can bring, right. it was like a, an epiphany for us. So like, oh my God, this is like such added horsepower. We can do so much more. Um, and that was, a, that was a real turning point. Yeah. Like sort of upgrading, uh, well, not even upgrading. We, we, there was just a big, you know, we had a lot of folks that at the sort of entry level positions. Mm-hmm. And then there was this big swath in the middle of, of sort of seasoned uh, leaders that that we didn't have um, okay. just just below us oh this was the missing swap the missing swap the missing swap okay. yeah and and uh, filling that in um, was really a critical kind of turning point right okay yeah. so you were able to hire good people yeah and then you hired them and wow you found out what a difference it makes having right. really good people yeah because you had really you have really good copywriting and creative people I mean mm-hmm. I feel like so much of your brand is how you communicate about yourselves and everything that you do—it's—it's mm-hmm. it's such a part of of the whole package. Right. right. Um, so I mean, and, and you've had people that have been with you for some some time doing right. that, yeah. right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That team. That that team. I'm speaking of. It's still. I think all of them are still with us, uh, for the most part. Our, our CFO recently retired, uh, and he was uh, um, maybe ten years older than us, mm-hmm. uh, or more than that. Um, and was with us for several years, but um, yeah, that continuity, um, that loyalty and continuity of keeping the same team is really key too. So, yeah. um, and for us, it's about you know, culture and and you know what what Blue Dot's like to work. You know, what kind of places Blue Dot to work at. Um, so we're thankful that they're all, yeah, hanging around. I feel like one of the marketing things that I remember was it was it was like you had put chairs all around New York. I can't remember what yep. it was called, but it was sort of this sort of dumpster diving kind of concept of like, like let's see if people will pick up this chair and what happens next. Can you, can you yeah, tell yeah. me about, about yeah. that? Because I, I loved that. So it's a real good chair, which is a, it's actually a ready to assemble chair that comes in kind of a big pizza box. Right. And I think this was the first anniversary of the store in New York was what kind of inspired this. Okay. And the idea was... 2010, about. 2010. 2010, okay. So the idea was that we would put 25 of these on the streets of New York, you know, assembled. Right. But just on the curb, kind of, you know, on like sort of, it's a little bit inspired by curb mining and the idea of walking down the street and seeing somebody had just put this dresser on the street. I'm right. Like, I'm just going to take it home. Yeah. So putting these on the, uh, uh, on the sidewalk, about 25 of them all over New York, um, but we GPS enabled all the chairs. So on the bottom of the chairs, there was a little battery pack and uh, basically a cell phone. Okay. So you had a little so, tracker on so each one. So we knew exactly where each one was all right. the time. And we also had camera crews that were surveilling some of the chairs. And so they would basically watch people come over and, you know, walking down the street, somebody would stop and kind of look at it and tip it back and inspect it and then maybe sit down and maybe have a cigarette <laughs> and, then, uh, and then just walk home with it. So that happened... Uh, I don't know how many, all these things just disappeared off the streets. Right. And then the next day, with a camera crew, uh, the team went back and they basically rang the doorbell and said... So you went to the people's homes yeah, who had yeah, taken we, the chair. we tracked them. Right. And we said, uh, did you take a chair off the street yesterday? And they said, um, maybe. Why? <laughs> and they said, you know, we work, we work for the chair company. We're curious. Yeah. What do you like about the chair? Right. So then they interviewed, uh, I don't know, four or five different people who had taken the chairs off the street. Um, but um, and then that became really interesting to hear what their story was and who they were and why right. they were interested. And they let the camera crew come into their home. And one was a, I, I saw it on the street and it was a color that 
uh, you know, my boyfriend had made this, whatever, the stool for me, and it was the same color, blue, and I thought he would really love it, and, and then there was a father, and he got it for his son because he needed a place to play his guitar, and, like, there's really touching stories <laughs> This whole it. backstory of why they took the chair. Yeah. I was, love it. But it was just, it was, but it was a kind of a, I don't know, to, to you know, demean it a little bit, it was a viral stunt in a way. It was yeah. like, how do we get, you know, trying to get people to learn about Blue Dot, and how do we create content that was interesting, and, and people would want to share it with other people, um, you know, which is, that time has sort of passed. I mean, it's, those are a dime a dozen now, right? Those happen every day, all the time. So yeah. there's a lot of noise now, but at the time we did it, it was still... Um, it was a pretty fresh idea, and it got a lot of play and a lot of press. Oh yeah, no, I remember it got a lot. Of, it got a lot of press and a lot of. As you say, it wasn't so crowded with right. social media, right. and it was such a fun concept, and uh, and the footage was great, yeah. and and it it seemed like such a classic New York thing too. You know, so often on New York Street, you'll walk by this thing right. on the street, and you're thinking, oh, is someone really throwing that out, or right. should I take that? I mean, I've done it myself, where I sort of go back later when I used to live down in St. Mark's Place. People would throw away like the most amazing things, and I would constantly be lugging them up to my right, apartment, right, yeah. and I'd keep it for a little while and think, do I hold on to this? Should I not? I mean, so I loved that people had all these different reasons why they had taken the mm -hmm. chair, and it, it, yeah, it was great. It was fun, but so it so it you know it, it talked about New York and a thing about New York, which is curb mining culture you know, right. that you just talked about. So that yeah. was very much a thing about New York, and it was about getting our product into the world, like yeah. literally getting it into the world. Uh, making it accessible, putting it on the street, um, and and there was also kind of a fun, humorous piece to it. The the video's funny, yeah. So this idea of humor that we kind of weave through our, you know, through the instructions and through right. our marketing, exactly. It's such, such a part of your culture, the yeah. The, yeah. the humor, and and as you said, John earlier, not taking yourself seriously. In fact, just the opposite, sort of, you know, trying not to be serious about all of this while while making substantial furniture, because that was the other thing. I mean, you were at a an affordable price point, but it's really substantial furniture mm -hmm. from a quality standpoint. I mean, these are pieces that people are going to have for right. a long time. Okay, so let's fast forward to where we are today. So here we are. It's 2018, and how many stores do we have? We have uh, seven stores in the U.S. Okay, uh, and three stores internationally. Okay, uh, two in uh, two in Mexico, one right. in Mexico City and Monterey, and then one in Monterey, and one in um, Sydney, Australia. And why Sydney, Australia? How did that come about? We met a guy from Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'd love to have your product. Yeah, he, and he, who wouldn't take no for an answer. Yeah. He basically, I think he must have gone to the San Francisco store. Which no, he went to the Soho store. Soho store. Yeah. And I don't know if he was in for ICFF or why he was here, but he went he, and he thought, this is, this is perfect for Australia. This is what Australia needs now. And he, if I remember correctly, I mean, jump in, John, but I, I, I feel like he came to us and, and was, said, I want to do this store in Sydney. And we basically like, we don't know who this guy is and why would we turn the keys to our brand over to this guy in Australia? And yeah. thanks a lot, we appreciate your enthusiasm. But he was persistent and just kind of kept after us. And every time he'd come from Australia, we'd hear from him. And I think he kind of turned the corner when he, he came to the uh, ICFF, the trade show right. here in New York. Right. And he offered to work in the booth for the day. Basically said, just I'll just pretend like I'm a Blue Dot employee. I'll represent you. Yeah, I'll represent you. I love it. And he was unbelievable. Like the way he talked about the brand, the way he talked to customers. I mean, if I remember right, that was kind of the deal that, I mean, that 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 was the difference. Yeah. We, we basically dated for about yeah. a year and a half or two years until we felt comfortable with, you know, probably he felt comfortable with us too. Um, because we are putting our brand in somebody else's hands. I mean, sure. We, we would never... Uh, presume we can operate our own store and 
somewhere as far away as Sydney, Australia. <laughs> right. uh, um, so uh, we really need a, a local partner. So um, and uh, Brad has been uh, really uh, an amazing partner, and that's how we that's how we ended up in Mexico as well. Same same thing. Uh, same thing. Yeah. Some people so found Mexican you and partners wanted, wanted to do to. the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so if there's anybody out there listening in London, yes, or if Paris, there's anyone in the Rome, audience who wants to come forward, <laughs> uh, the next targets are uh, Amsterdam, Paris, yeah, and right. uh, yeah, but you're but you're open to that, is the point? Absolutely, yeah, right. And yep. and some people come along, and if and if they make sense for the brand, and yeah. and they want to take it internationally, and what are, so what are some of the challenges of having a shop in in Sydney? I mean, are there a lot of shipping challenges? Are there a lot of other challenges? I don't think I think lead time is probably the biggest challenge okay. right? because we we inventory all of our product in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. No matter where it's made in the world it comes to Minneapolis. Right. Okay. And uh, so it has to get from Minneapolis to Australia which is a long way. Yeah. So I mean shipping play, shipping cost plays a role. Um, right. But um, currency can sometimes play a role. Over time as their currencies fluctuate against the dollar then you know our our product gets more or less expensive to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's minor generally. But um, they've been great experiences and you know, that's one of the fun things about having uh, your own business is you can kind of uh, roll with it. You know, like, well, yeah. yeah, let's try this out. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's a terrible idea, but maybe it's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's the worst that can happen when we try one store in Sydney? So, um, and it turned out to, to work pretty well. So, yeah, I think we've been lucky. I think I think the brand voice could could have been a challenge mm-hmm. with, with the wrong partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they've been such good partners that they know exactly... What our brand voice is, and they get it. Yeah, um, and their you know their websites and their countries are versions of it's it's our website right. basically, but in their language and mm-hmm. with their pricing. So that's all consistent. The web presence in the different countries. And Australian is it's sort of English, right? I mean, yeah. it's sort of the same language. <laughs> There's a lot more energy, right. I feel yeah, like, right, right? Right, right? And enthusiasm. Got some extra letters and like color yes. and aluminum and things like that. Right. <laughs> yeah, Most yeah. Of the same. Right. So you didn't have to change too much. No. For no. That, right. right. But uh, so now, all these years later, you're sort of being recognized as these gentlemen of design, right? You, you, Cooper Hewitt is uh, giving you a design award. And, and so how do you feel about that? Oh, that's, that's <laughs> awesome. I mean, it's the most, uh, you know, just an incredible honor and a really important award. I think, you know, probably one that we've wanted to win for several years. We've been nominated yes. several times. We were starting to feel like Martin Scorsese there for a while, <laughs> like nominated like seven times in a row and never won. But right. uh, so yes, it was really nice uh, to win the National Design Award for product design, So, um, which we received last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, big, it's big recognition. Yeah, it's and, terrific. And you, and you must be very proud. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you've got you've got a book coming out. Uh, I got to see a little bit of it, and it's it's fantastic. It's so fun. As I say, I was going through the old faxes and um, yeah. and all your sort of communications back and forth. Tell us a little bit about the book that's coming out. Oh, it's basically the, it's celebrating twenty years of Blue Dot. So it's um, uh, a story of Blue Dot as told through a, kind of an oral history. Right. Um, there's an article from Andrew Blauvelt, who's the director of the Cranbrook Museum, mm-hmm. uh, Cranbrook School. And so that's that's puts us in you know his, his is more academic that's the more academic part of the book it puts right. us in like a historical context and the late yeah so I, and I loved reading that and so okay. explain why that's uh, the first part of the book um, I, don't know. I, don't know. He, I think he he um, there's some there's several things that make us slightly unique versus other designers right. one is that we decided to take 
take on the whole business part of design. Mm -hmm. Most designers work independently and design for other com design for other manufacturers. Right. And we were kind of, I don't know, naive enough or ambitious enough to try and do it all ourselves. So, um, you know, he talks about that, and he talks about um, you know setting us in the context of, of great designers that have come before us and Ames and, and Saranen. Right. I mean, there were some big names yeah, that right. he was yeah. putting you in the company. And, and um, we're we're never going to talk about ourselves <laughs> that way. Uh, so I don't think it would be appropriate. No, right, 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 right. Yeah, uh, but he does it in a very interesting way. I mean, he's really uh, a, a really smart uh, uh, curator and, yeah. uh, and 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 been a great fan uh, friend and uh, and supporter of ours over the mm. years when he was living in he lived in Minneapolis before he was at Cranbrook. Um, but yeah, so just to sort of set the stage sort of. Right. And then um, the oral history part telling the story that basically the story we're telling now. Yeah. Um, we thought was important to include because I, I think whenever we do um, public speaking, uh, you know, talking about our work, generally we're showing pretty pictures or talking about the design process, talking about design, but mm -hmm. inevitably when it comes to the question and answer period at the end, the questions and answers are are about like well how did you do it right. like what did you fund it yourself and yeah. you know yeah. all the sort of sausage making part of it uh, is where a lot of people are interested in so uh, so that's why we, we thought that section was important to include and what is informing your design sensibility these days so what's inspiring you to today and, and, and what's what's making you sort of move in a certain direction or you know mm. with where you're going yeah lots of things it's hard it's a hard I mean it's it, it's a question we think about, and it's hard to answer because there are so many pieces. And part of it is we're constantly looking at our, at our existing assortment and mm -hmm. saying, you know, what are we missing? What don't yeah. we have? Um, and that informs kind of product type. So maybe we need a smaller desk, or maybe we need a larger this. Um, so that yeah, that that helps us decide what to work on. Mm -hmm. um, but we have, you know, we were the the three of us were the principal designers for the first several years, and and now we've got a much we have a larger design team, and you know, so they're. They inspire us. Uh, I mean, they are. Um, uh, you know, Maurice and I act now more like creative directors, and and you know, our uh, designers in our studio will pin up uh, work, us responding to a brief that we might set up, and um, you know, that's often fun. I mean, it's it's still a collaborative process, and and uh, everybody's kind of kicking around ideas. So, um, but they've got a different. You know, they they all come to come to the conversation with a slightly different. Uh, point of reference than we had, um, and that's refreshing. I mean, they're still designing under the under the umbrella of Blue Dot, so everything that we create, we still want to feel like Blue Dot, you right. know. And and sometimes we'll say in, in critiques like, well, I don't I don't know if that's Blue Dot, you know. It just doesn't, you know. It's either too decorative or mm -hmm. it's too arbitrary or it doesn't have the sort of um, clarity and economy and straightforwardness of I guess what makes our kind of design DNA. And and have you stayed? Retail has has have designers played a, a big role in your in your business. Have have companies that want to put your product in their offices and all of that. Has that become part of your business or, or yeah yeah a big big part of our business a big part of your business yeah yeah um, I mean I, I think we like to I mean partly we're flattered by it because these <laughs> are design professionals right so they if they <laughs> like our product that says something um, but I think it just also indicates that there's a need in the marketplace for things in workplace, you know, furniture in workplaces that are more residential, mm -hmm. that are friendlier and more mm -hmm. comfortable than traditional historical uh, office furniture. Yes. Um, so they're, you know, they're doing a little bit of kind of, maybe they do some office cubes over here, but then they want to have, you know, a really comfortable, uh, nice looking blue dot sort of, you know, conversation pit over here. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, offices are now looking more like boutique hotels when they used to look like you know cubicle farms. Yeah. Right? So um, that is um, we played a big. That's been a big part of our growth in that that part of the business. And do you have people servicing that side of the business? Sure. Do you have people calling on designers? Or <coughs> we do. Yeah. Working yep. with. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And so, do you have people on the ground in New York that are going around and, and seeing designers, or because you've got well, this, this, we have someone in the store that does that. Okay. Who's really specifically dedicated to that to that channel. But we don't have a, a, a network of, of reps that are out calling on um, architects and designers like a right. lot of companies do. Yeah. And we're we're thinking about doing that. It's about time probably for us. But mm -hmm. our business has grown nevertheless. I mean, it's grown in crazy crazy growth rates in those channels. Without doing much pitching, without we're right. doing mostly catching. Right. So, um, but we want to. We want to. We're going to start to change that. I think this year and start to actually put a few more people um, out and about, calling on, calling on those firms. Because the opportunity is there. Yeah. yeah. To yeah. Do, to and really it's tough when you know, you know we yeah. ask our store store folks to do that, but it's you, you end up getting anchored to the store. It's hard to leave the store. Sure. Uh, yeah. And actually get out and, right. and do that. So. But we have created a little bit of an infrastructure. So on our website, there's a link. It says basically, you know, trade sales mm -hmm. and you can click through it if you're a designer right and you can online you can I think you upload your tax ID and you can immediately right. get that the, the you know you can set up an account that's literally okay. a trade account uh, okay. and it allows you some functionality that you don't have as just a regular consumer mm -hmm. um, and we have as we said before there's a team in Minneapolis that services that and they understand what the needs are of an interior designer or of an architect that that's different than just a, a customer off the street so um, I think what, what we hear is that architects and designers can get frustrated with um, basically consumer companies, that they that the customer service teams are one-stop shopping for all their channels. So if you're a just an, a normal person buying a couch or you're a designer buying 20, you get the same customer service people and they don't necessarily, they're not trained for that, for the specificity of the architects and designers and their right. needs, yeah. which are different. Is that one of the areas that you're most focused on going forward? Like, where do you where do you want to take Blue Dot from here? What's next? Where is it going? World domination. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we've got uh, space. We're going to go to space. <laughs> right. Excellent. From from what I understand, that's happening much sooner than any of us thought. Well, actually, we're so, going to we're going right? to we're going to three D print everything. I think. Uh, no, I think we want to do more of the same. I mean, you know, it's it's um, you know, our stores serve uh, consumers and I mean, right. end users, and they also serve the trade. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of a big, we look at it as sort of a big stew. I mean, we've got a catalog, and we've got a website, and we have stores, and, and you, really need to, you really need to meet customers where they want to be met. Mm -hmm. and, where, you know, and so you need to be in all those different places. And um, we'll, add, we'll continue to add stores in the U.S. and internationally um, at, a, at a reasonable pace. I, I could see us having you know, 20 or 30 in the U.S. and, and maybe the same internationally yeah. uh, at some point. Um, yeah. But, you know, we we built the business um, slowly and organically, as we've said, you know, mm -hmm. without buckets and buckets of venture capital, um, kind of brick by brick. And and that's that's just the way we do it. And, um, you know, we're, we're ramping that up a little bit. But, mm -hmm. we're, you know, you won't see us opening 15 stores in one year. Right. Uh, I mean, there's so many examples of retailers that did that, that that had to backtrack <laughs> to yeah. scale that yeah. way yeah. back. And some retailers that still need to close an awful lot of right. stores, <laughs> right. right, to right. get back to, yeah. Right. Uh, terribly sad what's, what's happened with, with retail in, in many mm -hmm. ways. So you're taking it slowly and, and having it grow organically. And you mentioned the catalog. I mean, catalog is still a, a big part of your business, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It is, yeah. I mean, that's been a big change for us. We, 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 we started, you know, really mailing catalogs. I mean, like, like a traditional cataloger right. would only about three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, really, once our product assortment got to the size that it made sense to actually invest in sending out, you know, lots of catalogs. Um, but it's a really important tool uh, for us to get Blue Dot introduced to people that don't know us. I mean, up until then, I think up until pretty recently, we were well known among design groupies and design junkies. But, you know, in the next ring out or two rings out from that, people didn't necessarily know who we are. So um, we're now um, we're now changing that, I think, by by introducing ourselves to folks that probably have a sensibility for what we do, but but haven't heard of us. Yeah. Yeah. So as you as you look back, uh, so we, we talked about the Cooper Hewitt Design Award. I mean, do you think that that's what you would point to as sort of one of the things you're, you're most proud of over the <laughs> over the years? I mean, what, what really stands out for you as things you, you couldn't have even imagined have happened o- over the years from when you first got started? I think that award is definitely won. Yeah? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, really I never thought would be when we started Blue Dot, I thought it would be great to, to, to do what you love to do every day and you know, make great design. It would be great to have a business and maybe, maybe uh, you know, earn a good living or create some wealth over the, you know, in the process. But um, what, what's really most rewarding, and it sounds, um, I don't know if it sounds sappy or not, but, but you know, we have got this amazing team of people that, that, that uh, work with us. I mean, yeah. over 150 people around the world. And... Um, and we've created this great family and this great community of people that that wouldn't have existed if we didn't have this crazy idea 20 years ago. And, um, you know, to see them being really fulfilled in what they do and happy. And right. many of them have been this, you know, 10, 15 years. And we've seen their kids grow up. And, you know, we, we know they're, you know, we, we've shared our lives together basically yeah. with this group. And, and that um, that community has been is, is super cool. Like that's probably for me the, one of the most rewarding things. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's exactly the thing that you you don't think about when you start a company that 20 years later you're going to look back and say, you know, developing this team and leading these people and meeting these people and working with them and sort of enabling them to, to have these careers is the most satisfying part. I mean, you just don't, you're, you're thinking about product. What sure. You make and what's it going to be? You're um, thinking about yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and and you so and you've created all these jobs, and and you've and you've come to know all of these families, and all, and right, and all yeah, of yeah. them, and you have a very close knit culture. It's, it it yeah. seems like, and people tend to tend to stay, and and it seems like a, a fun place to work. Uh, lots of people on Glassdoor say, "Oh yeah, I love working there. It's really great," you know. Um, and dividing your roles these days, so who's doing what? So John, what, what what's your role these days? I mean, I know you're listed as the CEO, yes? Right. Right? And yep. and Maurice, you So I don't do anything. You, I was gonna say, <laughs> so that means what? And, and, you're, and you're the chief operating officer, right? right? right. And so, so, how, do, how, do you, how do you divide your, so your maybe, roles? So maybe the kind of the quick way to say is front-facing and back-facing, you know, John's looking at the customer marketing, right. all those teams report up to him, in addition to finance, and then sort of the, how do we get it made? Where do we get it made? How do we get it to the warehouse? How do we get it to the customer? All the things that happen behind the scenes are really yeah. kind of on my plate. But design, we basically co-create direct or co-direct. Okay. So the design team is sort of you know we're sort of equally over them, um, but we're both kind of really involved in the strategy of the other person's world. You know, so mm-hmm. if John's working on something in marketing at a high level, you know, I'll be in his office. Or then if we're looking at how are we going to rejigger our fulfillment, you know system across the country you know, right. he'll come in so it's it's pretty it's pretty you know it's a lot of back and forth yeah maurice has the harder of the two jobs <laughs> well 
Well, I'm, I'm like the car battery. You're the you know? car battery? Well, every day, every day it starts, every day it starts. And the day that it doesn't start, the day the product doesn't <laughs> get delivered. Totally right. Then everybody's like, where the hell is the product? What did you do wrong? <laughs> like, what about the other 364 days? <laughs> Don't you remember how good I was yesterday? I started every yeah, day. Yeah. <laughs> well, so along those lines, and this is my last question for you, it's such a challenging environment is all you hear from people, right? Retail is so challenging. Yeah. I mean, you guys have made it all sound very easy. And no, we just made some great stuff and we just keep growing. And But I mean... What are, the, what are the challenges that are facing you to, today that, that really are, have, have made this environment especially, I mean, you opened a store in Soho during the financial crisis, so maybe it's all easy for you now, I don't know. Yeah. There's, nothing, there's nothing really daunting. I mean, there's, there's nuisances, I'd say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, tariffs are right. a nuisance, or just the uncertainty of uh, this trade war. All that back on. and forth yeah, and, I mean, and wondering what is going to happen. It's completely yeah. unproductive right, for right. business and, sure. and stalls decision making and stalls investment making. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I can't wait for that to clear up. Right. Um, but it's manageable. Yeah, not, uh, it's not fatal. Mm -hmm. No. Uh, knockoffs are, you know, a constant nuisance. Right. Uh, you know, because our, our products are relatively affordable, we're not the target of knockoffs too often because. Right. People can't make them for much cheaper than you know, sell them for much less than we sell them for. Mm -hmm. So, um, but uh, there are a lot of bad copies, and we have to constantly deal with with that. And we deal, you know, we have to deal. You have to deal with that aggressively. But, um, but really, I mean, no, the environment's great. I mean, um, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> okay, honestly, no. I mean, and people say retail is dead. It's like, I, doesn't retail doesn't seem dead to us? That news hasn't reached you. No, right? no about no, retail being dead. Not at all. Yeah, no. Apparently, it's really not doing well. No. But I, yeah. think if you have, I, th I think if you have a, a, a cohesive story with an authentic brand, yeah. that you that people value that. I mean, as much all this noise about choice and and cost and price and next day yeah. delivery and all these things that go on, I think ultimately, especially when you're furnishing your home, you want a really nice piece that you care about and you like the story behind yeah. it. Right. And you're not convenience doesn't overcome that need. Right, you still you have to live with this table for a long, long time. So if it comes today at four o'clock or tomorrow at two or in a week and a half, I'm probably okay with that mm -hmm. because this is the, really the table I want. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I mean, bad retail is dead, and and right. you know, and the, the and, bar is high. Yeah, and also the bar and the bar is high, and the bar will. I mean, retail will 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 persist, especially for for categories that are like ours or higher fashion or others right. that are. That people want that experience. I think people are human. Like yeah. how 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 sad would our world be if literally we only shopped online? Like I, I I'd, you know put a gun in my mouth. I mean that would be awful. Yeah. To not you know to not be able to <laughs> not be able to go out and 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 you know walk into a store and and touch things and talk to people and have an experience like that. I mean, that's fun. So I you know. And and part of what keeps us human. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? I mean the whole yeah. exchange and yeah. as you say, and and what do you think about? sort of this this evolution of modern design so I mean the, America seems to be slower than a lot of other parts of the world with sort of adopting modern design is that mm -hmm. an ongoing source of frustration for you or I mean do you feel like your customer base gets what you do and there are plenty of people that are buying modern I, design I think they get what we do and I think it's an ever-growing group right? yeah, I think yeah. it's I think it's just people who like modern design there are more people today than there were when we started in mm. America that like modern design. Right. Probably yeah. because of the internet and, you know, I mean, you, when we started, I mean, 
and you just to even see modern design, you know, you had to subscribe to Metropolis or, you know, yeah. some, some design magazine. You couldn't see it online. No, uh, absolutely. I mean, now it's all over. Uh, and people, you know, I think people are way, way more aware of it and uh, way more into it uh, in a broad in a broad sense. Um, there's not as many, there's not many people doing it necessarily. I mean, creating it. Right. Uh, but there's, there's still there's I mean, consumers that's the thing. for there's it. There's not yeah. a lot of them. Yeah. 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 So, so it's interesting from that perspective. And most of the shelter books, I mean, to your point, even today, they're still much more highly decorative, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. than they are contemporary. Right. Um, but one of the one of the dwell editors actually, right, was involved in in helping you with the book. If yes. I recall. Right. Yeah. yeah. Amber yeah. Bravo. Yeah. 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 I mean, and dwell was sort of a publication that I always sort of thought had your sort of look and feel mm-hmm. and, for sure. and, and sensibility, right? Yes. Yep. For, yeah, absolutely. Definitely dead on. Yeah. 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 Well, I've. I've Loved having you guys in, and, and I really appreciate you uh, popping in on your visit to New York and, and spending time with us. So, yeah. so thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, yeah, absolutely. My guests have been John Christakos and Maurice Blanks, co-founders of Blue Dot. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, tell a friend about the show, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again to our sponsor and our producers. You can find us at businessofhome.com or on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week.